That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, this is Tim Kirkman with ESPN, and my wife, who's a thousand times smarter than me, has filled the garage with old antiques that are just sitting there. She's brilliant at it. I love that she loves doing this. It keeps her mind off me never being at home, but I really need to clean out the garage someday, and I realize I have no chance of doing that. Okay, I've got two words for you, Tim. Marie Kondo. Just like you, she is a pint-sized delight, and if your wife binge-watches Tidying Up with Marie Kondo on Netflix and sees how much joy can be sparked by a good garage cleanup, your problem will be solved. Because you, of course, can't demand that she tidy up her extensive collection of antiques. I'm sure she thinks she has some sort of system and that things are much more organized than they appear to you. So if you saunter in with some sort of ultimatum about when and how things need to be cleaned up, she'll probably resent you for not supporting her hobby. So it's got to be her idea. More accurately, Marie Kondo's idea. So one afternoon, binge-watching, tidying up. One more afternoon, following Marie's tips and boom. An organized garage, and you never had to ask. You're welcome. The commission has spoken. This week's guest is Tim Kirkchen. He joined ESPN in 1998. He lives and breathes baseball, and he is also a riot. He's a reporter for Baseball Tonight and SportsCenter, multiple other ESPN shows, a senior writer for ESPN the magazine, the author of three books. And again, this guy is an absolute delight. Whether he was telling me about yelling F-bombs into the woods because he got beat on a scoop, being mistaken for a child in his early days as a reporter, playing pickup with Cal Ripken Jr., or the task that he did for 19 years in a row that caused him to call himself an idiot. He had me and producer Dan rolling for most of this interview. I think you guys are going to love it. Most of you know him as Tom Here's Tim Kirkshin. That's what she said. So happy to welcome in Tim Kirkshin, a man who we've heard from for years, but maybe don't know enough about when he's not breaking down the latest in baseball news or cracking up on the Dan Lebitard show about the many looks like that Dan tries to get him with. So let's dig a little deeper into the man himself. And Tim, I want to start actually with your childhood. Your your father was a fascinating sounding man, three degrees statistician, the chief mathematician for the U.S. Army Material Command. That sounds like a very serious job. Was he a serious guy? No, he's the funniest person I've ever met in my life was my (laughs) father. And nobody, nobody commanded a room better than my dad when it came to all things, mathematics, baseball, other things. And when we were growing up, and my dad was a really good player as a young man and through college. And he gave us all a feel for baseball in our family. This is the only language we spoke in my house growing up. Two of my brothers are in the Hall of Fame at Catholic University for baseball. So this isn't something that I just got interested in after college. This is something that has been with me my entire life and all because of my father, who used who used his mathematical genius, Ph.D. at MIT, under, uh, undergrad at MIT, um, 
he used his mathematical genius practical application to baseball. So I can't even begin to tell you how many times I sat around with my father looking at the baseball encyclopedia and figuring out all sorts of arcane statistics that he loved as much as I did. So was the love for baseball early on about breaking it down statistically? Or when you were a little kid, did he get you in via stories and and, and looking up to players? Well, it was both, of course. When we were really young, we used to go to the Shoreham Hotel, and he would take us down there on Sunday mornings to get autographs from the players who were in town when they were playing the Washington Senators. That was one way we did it. We did it through statistics. And I can tell you a thousand stories about Jimmy Fox, Lefty Grove, Ted Williams, <laughs> especially from my father, who shared them with me all the time. So it was a practical deal. He threw BP to us a million times, hit ground balls to us a million times. And but it was also the mathematical and the storytelling part that my father was so good at. Was your mom uh, also a baseball fan or did she begrudgingly, you know, hang out while the, the boys of the family were engaged in it? Well, my mother was born in England and she moved here when she was about 24. So, no, she had no interest whatsoever <laughs> in baseball. And my mother is, is still the greatest mom, the greatest wife and the greatest grandmother ever. Trust me when I tell you that. But she didn't know anything about baseball. And we treated her well because she carried everything in our family, except for one night at the dinner table when she tried to tell us that a cricket bowler threw harder than a baseball player <laughs> did. And we got in this fascinating argument in 1968. Who threw harder, Bob Gibson or a cricket bowler? To which my dad, who never stood up to my mother, looked at her and said, Joy, Bob Gibson throws harder than a cricket bowler. Okay? That's the end of the discussion. <laughs> so your mom was uh, born in England and your dad's parents uh, were immigrants, right? Yes, they came over during the slaughter and that's how they ended up in in they, they settled in Watertown, Mass, which is where my father grew up just outside of Boston, which explains the Boston Red Sox interest from my father. He went to games at Fenway all the time. So Armenia, right, is, is where they originated from? Yes, uh, IAN. If 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 your last name is spelled in IAN, ends at IAN, there's a good chance you're an Armenian. We all look like, at least all the men do, really short, deep set <laughs> eyes, big nose, dark hair, not very attractive. That's how it works. <laughs> um, you aren't particularly tall. You mentioned your brothers both being a collegiate basketball Hall of Famers for Catholic University Cardinals. Are they are they stockier than you? Well, baseball Hall of Famers, first off, and yes, they're both bigger than me, but who isn't? I'm 5'5", five, five, <laughs> and I'm 143 pounds as of this morning. That's not a healthy thing for a 62-year-old man. My my brother, who's a year older than me, is bigger than me, but not significantly, but he's so much stronger in his hands and his wrists and his forearms, which is why he was a better baseball player than I was. And my oldest brother, Andy, who broke all the home run and RBI records at Catholic University, is much bigger than me, much smarter than me, much more handsome than me. <laughs> and not like it matters, but my father, the best dad ever, never once looked at me or my other brother and said, why can't you be like more like Andy? Because he was so good at everything. And we were, of course, his knucklehead younger brothers. And that was another great parenting job. 
by my dad as he realized Tim and Matt are never going to be as big, <laughs> as good, and as smart as Andy. Well, it was nice talking to you, Tim. I think I'm going to call Andy and get the get the real scoop from the best Kirkton. Um, no, I, I I love this dynamic of, of you uh, being so humble about your growing up. You played basketball and baseball. Uh, when did you stop playing? Well, I graduated from high school at five, two and a half, about 120 pounds <laughs> and looking really good. So I just figured, all right, I'm not I'm not good enough to play. I'm certainly not good enough to play baseball after this. I guess I guess there was a chance I could have played Division three somewhere in basketball. But my size really and my talent level just wasn't high enough. So I went to the state school, Maryland. I certainly wasn't playing either sport at that place. <laughs> so uh, that was the end of my playing career, although I wouldn't say it was the end of my athletic career. I I played in more pickup leagues than any man on the face of the earth for about a 40-year period. So you wrote for the paper in high school. When you got to Maryland, did you already have your sights set on a career covering baseball? Well, yeah. I went to high school at Walter Johnson High School, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. So there had to be some <laughs> sort of destiny involved here for this dinky little kid who only loved baseball. And he goes to a high school named after Walter Johnson. <laughs> and I worked for the school paper there. It was called The Pitch. I did a little bit of work for the yearbook. It was called The Windup. Really clever. <laughs> so when I went to Maryland, I said, all right, I can't play anymore. Uh, I need to get a career in sports because I don't like anything else, and I stink at everything else. So how am I going to do that? So eventually, Sarah, eventually I taught myself and I learned how to write. That took a while, believe me. Uh, but that was the goal at the University of Maryland was to become a baseball writer and miraculously, uh, I became one by age 22, 23. Tim, a lot of people who are surrounded by something or really, really invested in something that much in their youth burn out uh, from it, whether it's because your your dad was pushing it on you or because everything at your school was centered around it. Um, you've now been obsessed with baseball for the entirety of 60 years, essentially. Uh, how have you never gotten sick of it or lost that love? Well, to kind of repeat, I don't, I can't do anything else. I have <laughs> zero talent when it comes to anything else. I've never been trained to do anything else. If I tried to do anything, the, the kids once, I asked the kids once when I was, when they were like seven and five, give me something that dad's good at after I fouled up something else around the house. And they both agreed, okay. And I'm just quoting here. You're good at basketball. You're good at writing. And then there's this tremendous pause and they agreed you're good at feeding the dogs. That was it. That was the third thing on the list. So given that, I'm not trained to do anything but to truly answer your question. The game is still so great. It is so ingrained in me. I'm still so curious, so fascinated by the stuff that happens in baseball on a daily basis, looking at the box scores, talking to baseball players, watching games, that will never go away. And when it does, then I'll I'll have to retire. But to repeat, I won't have anything to do in retirement since I can't do anything else. <laughs> so you leave Maryland. Your first couple gigs are at the Washington Star and the Baltimore News American. Tell me what it was like to, to have your first professional jobs writing about baseball. 
Well, it was great. I, I marched into the boss's office at the Washington Star and said, I would like to cover the minor league baseball team in town, the Alexandria Dukes. And my boss looked at me and said, great, because we don't have anyone else on the staff that has any interest in doing that. <laughs> and I went in to volunteer and I covered all sorts of sports those first three years at the Star, baseball, basketball, football, baseball was always my favorite. And I'm sure you don't know this, Sarah, but the, the Star folded while I was there. So I had planned on working at the Washington Star for the rest of my life. And in <laughs> 1981, it folded. It, it stopped publishing one day. That was it. Then I went to the News American. I got a job there two days later. And after two months... That paper essentially folded because I was Tim, the first guy to get laid off. Death. I lost, I lost two jobs in two months. The L.A. Times called me. This is back when the newspaper business was starting to die, and they said, "We just noticed that you lost two jobs in two <laughs> months in the business." So I said something <laughs> stupid like, uh, "If I if this happens again, I'm going to go join the circus." And I ended up on the front page of the L.A. Times about this poor, pathetic little guy who lost two jobs in two months. But that was my entree into the newspaper business, which I loved then. I still love today, and it saddens me to no end that newspapers aren't what they used to be. Yeah, okay. So you killed two newspapers just at the beginning of your career, and yet you somehow give it a third go, Dallas Morning News, and you were the Rangers beat writer. Tell me some of the memories of your first job actually with a team working in a beat capacity. Well, the day I worked in, walked into the Dallas Morning News newsroom in early 1982, Harless Wade, what a Perfect name for a old Texas sports writer and a wonderful man. He looks at me when I walk in. He looks at me and he goes, and remember, I'm coming from Maryland. He goes, uh, you must be the new guy. And I said, yeah. He goes, you are the smallest goddamn Yankee I have ever seen. <laughs> so that was my entrance at the Dallas Morning News. But what happened was, and not many people know this, Skip Bayless was in a big contract squabble with the Morning News. And because they didn't meet his demands, he went across the street to the Dallas Times-Herald. And because of that, Randy Galloway, our baseball writer, became the columnist to replace Skip Bayless. And a week before spring training, they hired me to replace Randy Galloway, or they named me to replace Randy Galloway as the baseball writer. That's how I became a full-time, full-time baseball writer. I'd done quite a bit in Baltimore and in Washington, but not as the primary beat guy. But that's how that all ended up. And I I was overmatched terribly on the beat. I got my brains beat out for a year, <laughs> but eventually I figured it out. So that is something about being on the beat, right? Part of the job is to beat out other reporters for the scoop, to have better relationships, to get the breaking news. That seems at odds with your personality as a self-deprecating and modest and humble guy and a guy who just is super friendly and well-liked. Uh, was that was that a difficult part of the job for you or did you like the hunt of the story? Uh, well, I did back then, and it was uh, a competition, Sarah. If I missed the story, I lost. And I, after a year, lost so many times. I said, <laughs> all right, I'm not losing anymore. I know how to do this now. It took me a year to figure out 
exactly how the beat worked. I knew the game really well, and I could deal with the players, but I wasn't sure how the beat worked. And then I figured it out. But uh, it became a one win-lose situation, and for 10 years on the beat, and I'm not making this up, every single home game, I would get in my car with the two opposing newspapers. So I had three papers in my hand. I would take my dogs in the car. I would take them to a park somewhere, open the door and let them run free. And then I would watch, read the newspapers by myself. And if somebody had something that I didn't have, I would scream out loud and I would be so furious and so mad. And I didn't want to see, I didn't want anyone to see me that way. I needed to get the good or the bad news in private. That's how things worked for about 10 years. It was a truly pathetic lifestyle that I lived. (laughs) So you were literally in your car yelling out into the emptiness of whatever woods or park that you were in when you got beat. Yes, I would drop a few (laughs) F-bombs to myself that only me and the dogs could hear. It didn't seem to bother them. So that was the end of that. It was just all about learning how to do a very difficult job. And I will tell you, this many years later, that was still the best and most satisfying job I've ever had was being the beat writer for a major league team because I was the guy in charge of making sure when people woke up in the morning, they knew what happened with their favorite baseball team the night before. But keep in mind, Sarah, when I went to Sports Illustrated, I'd been gone for three years from the Baltimore Sun in 1990, and some guy called a radio station and said, hey, uh, where is Tim Kirkjian? His byline, I haven't seen it lately, to which the host (laughs) said, he left three years ago. (laughs) So maybe they weren't connecting the byline with my name. (laughs) So you were the Rangers beat writer for the Dallas Morning News. Then you went to the Baltimore Sun to cover the Orioles, as you mentioned. Those were your two back-to-back uh, beat reporting gigs. What's your biggest or most memorable either breaking news or event of covering that Orioles team? Well, when I went to cover the Orioles, I got on the airplane to go to spring training with Richard Justice, who, of course, is with the MLB Network and MLB.com. And he introduced me to a couple of Oriole players who were on the plane, one of whom was Floyd Rayford, who I'd never met before because I was covering the Rangers Now he's on the Orioles. So Floyd Rayford meets me for the first time. He looks me right in the eyes and he goes, Eddie, meaning Eddie Murray, Eddie's going to hate you. And I (laughs) said, why? He goes, your head is too big for the rest of your body. (laughs) I said, what? (laughs) So I had to go into the bathroom in the the airplane to look at my head against the rest of my body, which is exceptionally small. We've been over this, but my head is not disproportionate to the rest of my body. That's how my beat career began in Baltimore. I can hopefully say it went up from there, but Floyd Rayford was right. Eddie Murray hated me for about three years. I got through that eventually, but... uh, The difference between Baltimore and Dallas was the people in Baltimore loved the Orioles. It was the number one game in town. There were no Ravens. There were no Colts. Every word I wrote was prominently placed on the front page, as opposed to Dallas, where when Tony Dorsett started running wind sprints, my my stories went from page one back to page five. So you were married in 83, which I think was when you were still with the Rangers, hadn't yet switched to the Orioles. 
Uh, what kind of woman marries a man who screams into a, a, a wooded area when he's beaten on on the Rangers beat and spends all of his time engaged in baseball? Well, she's a rather patient woman, as she has to be, because anyone anyone who marries a baseball writer is asking for it because our job simply and pay simply was never commensurate with the amount of work and time and effort you put in if you want to do the beat properly. So my poor wife, Kathy, she she knew immediately because we got back from our honeymoon in uh, in Hawaii and I got home, I repacked and I was home for literally one hour and I went to the airport to go to the winter meetings. So she knew right away, all right, the honeymoon <laughs> is over, quite literally. And an hour later, he's going out of town. And she's gotten quite used to it since. So you head to Sports Illustrated. Uh, what were your expectations there? And were you ready to get off the beat? Or this was just an opportunity that came up? Yeah, I couldn't turn this down. They doubled my, maybe even tripled my salary and it was just a new adventure, and I was scared to death because now, now I'm a football player. I'm only playing once a week, and if you play once a week and you stink once a week, uh, you got to wait another week back then at least <laughs> to make up for it. Whereas on the beat, if you stink one night, and we all do, you can always make up for it tomorrow and write better tomorrow because there's another game. So the pressure that I felt at Sports Illustrated was enormous. I always wondered, am I good enough to work here? Because the people who worked there were such great writers, so brilliant. And certain days I felt like Fred Flintstone working there. But I got through it by just showing up every day. I wrote the weekly column there for eight years. I wrote a million features. So it was a great, great job, but a completely different job than the beat writer job because uh, every word had to be chosen so carefully just so no one in there said, this guy had a week to write this and this is what he came up with. How bad is that? <laughs> Who did you look up to at the time or maybe even right before getting that gig? Whose writing or whose job did you envy? Well, Dan Shaughnessy of the Globe was the baseball writer at the Washington Star that who I backed up while he was there. And Dan showed me the ropes. In fact, Dan introduced me to Earl Weaver for the first time. I think it was 1979. We walked on the field together. And Dan goes up to Earl Weaver, who's this iconic Major League manager, and says, Earl, this is Tim Kirkjian. He's going to be backing me up. He's going to be covering some games this year. And I hope I can say this. Earl looked right at me and said, you, Tim, and walked away. <laughs> So I'm like 13 years old. I'm three foot 11. I almost start to cry. And Dan looks at me and says, oh, don't worry. Earl only says that to the people that he really likes. Really? I just met him. <laughs> so Dan was my mentor in the business. He still is my mentor in the business. And then my second great mentor, of course, was Peter Gammons, who's the greatest baseball writer of all time, in my opinion. He taught us all how to do this. He taught us all how to write a Sunday notes column, which I did for 10 years, which helped me get hired at Sports Illustrated, which helped me get hired at ESPN. So Dan Shaughnessy and Peter Gammons are my are my professional journalism heroes and always will be.
you know, your stories are very funny and I believe them, but you're such a nice guy. You're so unintimidating. Why do you continue to meet people and their first response to be to make fun of the size of your head or to <laughs> you? Uh, I, I think I'm just an easy target. And again, <laughs> I think the size plays into that. I think when people call you Timmy, I think that plays into it. You're just some little guy you can just toss around. It's okay. Sarah, we, we are covering sports for a living. I tell people and players all the time, you better have fun with what you're doing, especially with baseball, because it's so hard to play. So I've always adopted, listen, if there's a laugh in it, count me in, because the rest mm-hmm. of it is so hard and so serious. If the laugh is directed at me, as it so often is, count me in also. Otherwise, I would be a hypocrite telling players do not take themselves so seriously. Don't be so sensitive. So I have to adopt the same philosophy, and I have over the last 40 years. When you talk about you know your size and how it affects people when you first meet them, um, women, especially in the industry, are constantly challenged with, you know, what do you know? You never played the game. You obviously are amongst giants of players at times. Baseball, not as much as if you were on, like, the NBA beat. But do you ever feel like throughout your career that was held against you or you weren't given the right respect or, or maybe before you established yourself as the Tim Kirchin that, that people didn't treat you like an equal because of that? Uh, absolutely. Everyone naturally would look at my size and say, seriously, what does he know about anything? What could he have possibly played at that size? Now, Sarah, I'm going to tell you a story that if this comes across boastful, I'm going to blame you, okay? Because you <laughs> kind of asked me, all right? <laughs> yes. Cal Ripken and I got along pretty well in 1986. And then in the off season, I accidentally ended up in a pickup basketball game with him. And back then in 86, Oh, God, I could go a little back in 86, okay? (laughs) So I play in the same basketball game as Cal Ripken Jr., and it was a raging conflict of interest. I should have left the gym, but they only had nine guys, so I had to stay and be the 10th. Please don't take this the wrong way. I played pretty well. Cal Ripken came up to me afterwards and said, I was very impressed with that. And ever since then, (laughs) he looked at me in a different way, like this isn't some dorky little guy who walks around with a pen and a pad of paper every day and asks me annoying questions. He realized, well, this guy has done something in his life athletically, and I think I reached a slightly different level with him, and that kind of trust that I created actually helped a great deal with him and eventually with some other players along the way. I love that story. That doesn't surprise me, Tim. We've heard enough about basketball to, to get that you, you had a little bit of game uh, when you're not, as you've told Dan Levitard, having a recurring nightmare about shooting a large winter coat at the free throw line, uh, which maybe maybe we'll have time to get into that later, although this is a podcast, not a therapy session. Uh, I wonder, when you when you didn't have the opportunity to play basketball with or against the other players, especially early on as you're, as you're establishing your footing, did you react to feeling aggrieved in any way by being boastful about the stats that you knew or overcompensating with an attitude or, or, or being extra nice? Was there any way that you reacted to understanding and, and knowing that they weren't respecting you? Uh, 
I never felt it was that bad. I certainly never showed off in any way. Hey, look at all this stupid stuff that I know. I know every home run hitter for the for the letter of the alphabet. I never did that because then they'd look at me and say, well, you're even nerdier than I thought you were. So uh, the only thing I ever tried to do, and this is obvious, we all do this, is try to relate to every player on some sort of personal level, find out what they like to do, where they're from, and then connect with them in a way other than in baseball. And then we would, once they realized I'm not some total dork, that maybe I can then merge into baseball here and start to ask them about the slider on the black. So I always try to make it something personal first, get them to trust me on some level i have something in common with you even though you're a foot taller than me uh (laughs) that's how i always attempted to do it and then that led to the baseball talk and then hopefully most of them realized this guy kind of knows what he's talking about not from a hey guess who just what jerry adair hit in 1964 (laughs) but more like i know what that backhand play in the hole is like i can explain that somehow I was able to get that across even in my diminutive form. Do you find that it's harder to get close to players now because of the age difference? Um, No, I find it's harder to get through to the players because of social media, because Mm -hmm. they're afraid to be funny. They're afraid to be, uh, you know, charismatic. They're afraid to be controversial because they know it's going to turn against them eventually. And that's not good for our game. It's not good for our business that so many players and understandably are cautious to say anything these days in case social media is going to turn it into something really bad. And that's one thing that I really miss. In my second book, I wrote a story just on on humor, just how funny baseball is. I went back and reread it not long ago. And like every guy I quote in there And I wrote this book in the mid-2000s was from the 1980s and maybe 90s. But by then, the funny people had started to say, I'm going to have to be intentionally boring here because it's not doing me any good to be funny now that this is being picked up and interpreted in different ways by social media. Yeah, that's frustrating for sure. So you're at Sports Illustrated, uh, a brief switch to hoops. And then in 98, you get the job at ESPN to do baseball again and to do TV. So you're 40 years old when you get to ESPN. Was there any trepidation about becoming a TV guy when you'd been a writer all along? Absolutely. The SI guys came to us and said, fellas, told, brought us all in together. We're starting a new network, CNN, SI. You guys are all going to be on TV about Eight, 10, 12 guys, including me, raised their hand and said, I don't want to do TV. I don't know how to do TV. <laughs> and they said, well, <laughs> you don't have a choice. You're doing it. So I did it uh, for, you know, CNN SI for like a, half a year. I went to the CNN people and said, uh, is someone here going to teach me how to do this? <laughs> and they said, no, there's no time for a writer. You can figure this out. And they just flipped me on TV. After six months of that, I went to ESPN. I went to the ESPN people and said, are you guys going to teach me how to do this? And they said, no, you're a writer. You'll figure it out. They just flipped (laughs) me on TV. So here it is 22 years later. I've spent a fortune on clothes. I wear more makeup than my wife. I've 
I w- spent a lot of time walking around in a circle talking to myself. It is really a sad, sad lifestyle I lead now. But it's I figured out how to do this only because I'm talking about something that I know about. If we were talking about politics or religion or hockey, I would be horrible on TV because I don't know anything about any of that stuff. Um, this is an, a crazy stat that I saw. So every day of the Major League Baseball season from 1990 until 2010, you cut out every Major League Baseball box score out of a newspaper and taped them into a spiral notebook. You once estimated this daily task, 15 minutes a day over 20 seasons, consumed 40 days worth of your life, and you eventually stopped only because the newspaper stopped printing box scores. What was the point of this exercise? Well, first off, I'm an idiot, number one. (laughs) It was my way of trying to keep up with all 30 teams at the same time. It was really important to me. I'm a very visual guy. I need to write stuff down. I need to see it. I need to touch it. And I could feel it better when I clipped the box scores and carried them with me year by year wherever I was going. So if I was flying, say, from Maryland to San Diego to do something on the Padres, I could look through every Padre box score in my box score book and at least have a working knowledge of a team that maybe I haven't seen in the last month. That was kind of... The idea, box scores are my favorite things in the world anyway, so having them with me was gave me great comfort. And I will tell you, Sarah, and I'm not proud of any of this, but I never <laughs> missed a day in 20 years. So in other words, I never did two days in one. Wow. And one night, this is the worst. It's a miracle <laughs> I'm still married, but... Uh, one night at 1145, I realized I forgot to do my box score book. I got out of bed. I was asleep. My wife was asleep. And I got up and went into my office and cut out a day's worth of box scores, taped them in my book to keep the record, to keep the streak alive, a streak <laughs> way more impressive than anything Cal Ripken did. My wife's look on her face when I got back to bed, it was like, how could I possibly have married such an unfathomable <laughs> geek as this? That was probably the low point of my box score book, although I will tell you, I kept them in my closet at home, and the weight of 15 years of box score books collapsed my closet. <laughs> and I got home from a road trip, and all my suits and all my all my beautiful clothes were like, covered with plaster i had to get a bunch of them replaced and it's not easy to find 38 short on the rack by the way and my brother matt had to come over and fix my closet which was destroyed by my box score books it's a metaphor in there somewhere about you know the weight of clinging to the past bringing down the, the the current uh current uh that's fascinating so you have a incredible memory you remember conversations players statistics interactions with people uh that's obviously a massive part of why you're good at your job but uh does it does it work for everything or do you only have this incredible memory for baseball and work no it doesn't work for everything i can't remember anything that's important I can't name all the presidents, uh, Supreme Court justices, no chance. When I go to a party, you know, my wife will say, uh, what did you think of the chandelier in the uh, in the living room? And I can't even remember what the living room looked like. So it's selective retention, obviously. I remember what I'm interested in. I remember what I choose to remember. So I can remember 
conversations, statistics, things that I can see, uniform numbers in baseball and basketball and football from growing up. But that's about the only thing that I can remember really, really well. Does that ever bother your wife if it's you forgot the anniversary or you forgot her favorite song or something that she once said that she really wanted you to listen to, but you can still remember how many RBIs someone had in 1974? Right. It it bothers her. I've never forgotten her birthday. Then again, it's on January the 1st. Pretty (laughs) hard to forget that one. That's pretty easy. And she is like a thousand times smarter than I am, but she has a (laughs) terrible memory. Terrible. So for her to get on me about my memory when she can't remember very many things very well anyway, uh, I think I'm covered there. Uh, you've covered baseball for a very long time. It feels like uh, annually, if not more often, we're working to fix it. Uh, in what era or, or, or generation did you think there was the most consternation about the state of baseball? Um, well, the early 80s was bad. And that's when I first was covering every day because there was such labor strife. I covered the 81 strikes era. It was awful. It was the hardest, worst assignment I've ever had. The hatred between the Players Association and the owners was a thousand times worse than it is today. And it's not very good right now. But back then, with all the labor unrest and labor uncertainty, that's when I worried the most about the game. Then I started to worry again when we lost the 94 World Series, start of the 95 season. That's the only thing that truly throws me off is when the game is not being played. And I'm just praying that three years from now, there won't be a work stoppage because this time I would really fear if the game is coming back uh, to any sort of point of strength if we have another work stoppage three years from now. What do you think the story you've told the most is when it comes to your lifetime in baseball? Um, well, I was, uh, I was at the Dallas morning news. I, I usually, this is the, probably the seminal moment in my baseball writing career. I had been a baseball writer uh, off and on, trying to catch on as a full-time guy. One night at the Dallas Morning News, I'd been in town about a week. We got a tip that Ron Meyer, the football coach at SMU, was going to be the next football coach of the New England Patriots. This was a giant story, and my boss at the Morning News said, Tim, our football writers are nowhere to be found. You have to write this story. So I call Ron Meyer on the phone 50 times. Clearly, it's off the hook. My boss says, you have to go to his house. <laughs> I'd been in town for a week. And I didn't even know how to get to my house, let alone his house. And I didn't know Ron Meyer from Oscar Meyer at this point. So I finally get to his house 10 o'clock at night. It's 1981, Sarah. I looked a whole lot younger then than I look now. And if it's possible, I was even smaller then than I am now. I knock on the door. He comes to the door. I say, hi, I'm Tim Kirkjian with the Dallas Morning News. And he says, oh, okay, how much do we owe you this month? So... I have to explain to another adult, I'm actually not the paper boy. I actually work for a real newspaper. And he invites me in. I ask him all the requisite questions. He lies to me on everyone. No, I haven't interviewed. No, I'm not going to the Patriots. I go back to my hotel, my apartment. I call in the story to the morning news. And five minutes later, Ron Meyer called me on my phone in my apartment. 
and said, Tim, your competitor from the other paper just showed up. And I didn't want to get you in trouble in your first week on the job. I told him the truth. And now I'm going to tell you the truth. And mm. I got the story in the paper the next day. But that, Sarah, was the moment that I decided, all right, I can't be chasing around college football coaches I've never even heard of. I'm going to try <laughs> everything I can to get into baseball full time. And like two weeks later, I was the beat guy for the Rangers for the Dallas Morning News. So who was the reporter at the other paper who was able to convince him to give the story that you weren't able to, that you owe everything to for not losing your job week one? Well, that was John Eisenberg, who I later worked with at the Baltimore Sun. We are dear friends, and I'm not sure how well he knows that story, but that's what Ron <laughs> Meyer told me. John Eisenberg just showed up at my house, and I told him the truth. So I guess I owe a lot to John Eisenberg and to the late Ron Meyer. Of course. Uh, all right, a quick uh, speed round here. Let's go through a couple of these. Uh, the player that you would consider the closest to you over the course of your whole career, who did you become closest with? Cal Ripken, I think I knew more about him than anybody else. He didn't let many people in. He let me in, so he's the answer. Current player who you consider the closest to you? Uh, well, Terry Francona is not a player, but he's in uniform and therefore he <laughs> qualifies. There is no one on the face of the earth funnier than him. And there is no more, you know, enjoyable person to be around in uniform that I've ever met than Tito Francona. Where do you fall on the managers in uniforms in baseball? This is a long time topic of conversation. Should they just be wearing a sweatsuit or a regular suit or a pair of jeans? No, they should wear a uniform because they're the only ones in the professional sports allowed on the field. If you're going to go on the field, no matter how ridiculous you might look, you need a uniform. <laughs> Who's your least favorite manager to cover or, or <laughs> interview or talk to? Uh, well, now they're all they're all easy, easy to deal with um, because they're all so, you know, worldly and they all know they have a job so i don't have any problem talking to anyone today the first time i talked to gene mock who i grew to love by the way i asked gene mock a question this is early early 80s i was the only one in the room i asked him a question and he looked at me for about 45 seconds stared me right in the eye and i'm thinking he's either going to hit me or he's going to scream at me and then he answered the question and I found out that's how he answers all the questions. So <laughs> I didn't enjoy interviewing him at the beginning. And at the end, I love to interview him. Least favorite player? Um, well, Eddie Murray hated me for three years. He just didn't like the way I did my job. He didn't speak to me for three years. But we have since patched it up. Uh, so I'm going to have to put him there, even though I patched it up. Is there anybody that you didn't patch things up with? Um, I don't think Kevin Brown likes me still. He was he was understandably upset with me about something. I tried to patch it up. I don't think I did. <laughs> what is your favorite memory from covering baseball? Um, well, I'll tell you. In 1982, this is going to sound ridiculous, 1982, old-timers game at Fenway Park. Ted Williams 
my beloved father's baseball hero, played in the old-timers game. He came out for batting practice, and I am literally eight feet from the batting cage. He takes off his jacket because he's embarrassed that he's gotten heavy. He's 61 years old. The first pitch he sees in batting practice, he hits a one-hopper into the bullpen in right center field. And I thought, oh, my God, I am right here watching Ted Williams hit the guy my father told me so many times about when I was growing up. I was a young writer that stayed with me. It will stay with me for the rest (laughs) of my life. I like that. That's great. Um, It's hard. You've got I'm impressed that you came up with one because you've been in industry for a long time to be able to to narrow it down. Uh, Can you think of your favorite looks like from the Levitard show? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it was one of the first was Jeff Van Gundy, who I love, by the way. He's so great. He's so funny. Jeff Van Gundy looks like the, the coroner that does an autopsy <laughs> while eating a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's, That's a good an one. early one. But oh. I'm not gonna. I am not going to apologize for laughing on that show (laughs) because those look likes are the funniest most clever written things i've ever seen and i'm laughing not because i'm an idiot i'm laughing because they're so beautifully written they're so good they're so good Uh, you are equally at ease on the levitard show or doing a sports center stand up or eulogizing a player that you became close to that passes away or is any part of your job more comfortable or more enjoyable to you well, again, I, I, I was really uncomfortable for a while there laughing and whooping it up with Scott Van Pelt and with Dan and, and others. But again, I really think it's important that we, it's a cliche, but you, you can't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. You got to take your job seriously. And I think it's okay to eulogize Frank Robinson when he dies, because that's what I like to do more than anything is to if someone were to die, that I would send them off properly. But I think it's okay to shed a tear about Frank Robinson and Mike Flanagan and Tony Gwynn and then turn around the next day and have a good chuckle with Scott Van Pelt or Dan Levitard. I think that's all part of the job. I think it's all part of being a journalist. And I'm not going to apologize for either one of them. Well, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that Everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. The 10 questions everyone answers. Number one, your Desert Island album. You're stuck on a desert island. You can only have one. Oh, God. Sarah, I don't know anything about music. I mean, at at all. I know who Rogers Hornsby is, but not Bruce Hornsby, okay? This is how it works. To answer your question, when I went to college at Maryland, every guy there was a music aficionado, so I'm going to take Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. All right, you found one. I thought you were going to go maybe with uh, Fogarty, you know, center field. Might be the only uh, <laughs> the only one you've got. <laughs> uh, I don't have number... much more beyond Elton John, believe me. <laughs> uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, I think it's uh, self-deprecation, not taking yourself <laughs> too seriously. Can't 
can't express enough how important I think that is for all of us. Well, it certainly comes through. That's for sure. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? I took French in, in high school and college instead of Spanish. And now 33% of the baseball players speak Spanish. And now that Real Cormier has retired, I don't have anyone to speak to. My greatest <laughs> failure was a poor choice in languages in high school and college. Moi aussi, je parle français. Et mon nom est Espagne. So stupid. So dumb. I did talk to a, a hockey goalie once in French, and that was the extent of my French usage at the sporting level. We both chose poorly. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yeah, once in basketball. I was 45 years old, lunchtime game. Absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Got in a fight with my own teammate. He was on my team. He was he was a terrible player. He was disrespectful to all the guys that are in the gym every day. We won seven games in a row. I scored 50 buckets. Not points, buckets in seven games. Then I made a mistake in the first game of this ridiculous lunchtime game. I made a bad pass, and he looks at me and goes, come on, man, are you trying? Like that. We just won seven <laughs> games in a row, and he joins our team and starts yelling at people. I passed it too hard to him. He threw it back at me as hard as he could. He punched me in the face. It lasted three <laughs> seconds. The worst, worst experience of my whole life. One fight, 0-1, knockout. Oh, did you actually get knocked out? No. Okay. I didn't good. even go to the ground. Oh, it was good. embarrassing. And then oh. I told my wife I got elbowed in the face. And then <laughs> I, three days later, I told her the truth. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Uh, I would like to be Mike Trout for a day. Mm. I would hit a ball over a fence and <laughs> run very slowly around the bases. I would dunk a basketball and then I would walk into any bar knowing, and I'm the biggest pacifist ever, I could beat up anyone in the bar if I wanted to. <laughs> would you bat flip? Uh, in today, if it's a walk off, I would back, bat flip. Other, and not a Jose Bautista bat flip, but yes, I would flip a bat, but only if I had a walk off homer in a postseason game. I think I would bat flip in spring training. I would bat flip every time, but that's, uh, that's me. <laughs> yeah, you're not 62, Sarah. I am. <laughs> Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I took a sociology course in high school. And we were talking about... Um, no, I can't tell that story. Uh, yeah, you no, can. Too, no, I can't. Um, Why uh, not? Well, I was in a study group with two girls in class, two beautiful girls in class. And we were doing like social mores and all that. And we, one of the things like, how are things done in other countries? And the word that came up was circumcision. Uh -huh. And I was a junior in high school and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> so they look at me and they think I'm kidding around. And I said, no, I, what does it mean? And one of the beautiful girls said, well, I can't tell you that. And I said, you can't tell me because you don't know or you can't tell me because you can't tell me. She said, I can't tell you. So I went home. I opened up the dictionary and there was this hideous 
drawing of a circumcision and I screamed out loud. My mother had to come upstairs and see what was wrong and never quite looked at those two girls again, nor did they ever look at me for the rest of my life. That was about as bad as it gets for a 16-year-old high school junior. Oh, I love that. Uh, What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh... <laughs> I I I got a lot of body hair. I really got to do a better job <laughs> keeping my ears shaved a little bit better. Every day I look a little bit more like Eddie Munster and it's embarrassing. Uh number 9, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, the exorcist. I saw it the first week that it came out, didn't know much about it, went in there absolutely petrified. Uh watched maybe a third of the movie because I was too afraid to watch the rest. And then I literally had trouble going downstairs uh, <laughs> late at night alone in the house. And I was 17 years old. <laughs> Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? <laughs> uh it- this is too hard. Uh, he he's he is okay. No, no, that's no. it. I just, I just that's your tombstone. I want everyone to know that I'm okay. all right and I'm approachable and I'm not going to hurt anybody. He's okay. That's I can't do any better than that. Usually Finally, the I bonus. Can, but... Who should I uh, who should I have on this podcast? Who do you recommend that I talk to? Uh. Well, you should have Levitard on if you haven't already, because he is brilliant beyond words. But you need to get Steve Russian from Sports Illustrated on, because he is the single smartest and funniest person on earth today. And he will entertain you. He will amaze you. He will dazzle you. I have never met anybody quite like him. Well, that's what she said. So did you catch that missing question in the Spanish Inquisition again? I'm still soliciting ideas from you guys via Twitter at Sarah Spain or in your reviews on the podcast app and iTunes. When you go in to subscribe, rate and review, just leave a suggestion for question number eight in the Spanish Inquisition and yours might be chosen. I've gotten some good ones already, but still going to take a couple more before I make the final decision. You can also leave dilemmas for the commish to solve in your reviews. Again, you can either go to the podcast app, go to the main page for That's What She Said and scroll down. You'll see ratings and reviews or go to iTunes where you can also rate and review and you can leave your dilemma for the commish to solve, which brings us to the South Bitch Sessions. Oh, and another thing. It's time once again for the South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. And today... It's people who don't let you get off the train or the elevator before they get on. It's common sense. There won't be room for all of you to get on and all of us getting off. And it's common courtesy, too. You're saving literally less than a second, pushing your way on instead of letting us get off first. And if I'm involved, you're probably actually losing time because I'm going to make it real hard for you to get on this train before I've exited. I'm talking not just not getting out of your way. But getting in your way as much as possible, rubbing shoulders, hitching up my giant purse on my shoulder and swinging it in your direction as you try to cram your way through the door prematurely. And I'm not proud of this, but kids are not safe. Anyone over the age of 12-ish 
or looks over the age of 12-ish will also be getting a shoulder bump. It will be a kindler and gentler shoulder bump, but it will be a shoulder bump nonetheless because these kids got to learn too. Because one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Just let us off the damn elevator or train or bus or trolley or boat or any other form of transportation before you get on. It just makes sense. And it's just polite. Were you raised in a barn? All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. When it comes to modes of movement, always let folks off before getting on. There. I fixed it. And today, our very first listener dilemma for the commission to solve. Welcome, Weedsy, to South Bitch Sessions. Let's hear this conundrum. Weedsy says, my question for the show. I'm 27, and I've recently started seeing a woman who's my age, but unlike her, I've never been married or had kids. She has three, three, five, and eight years old, and her ex is out of the picture. Almost all my friends are telling me to steer clear of a situation or commitment like this, But my feeling is that I really like her and I might regret it if I decide I shouldn't be with her just because she already has three young kids. Hoping for some advice from the commish. All the best, Jason. Okay, Jason, this is a tough one, but it actually comes down to just being honest with yourself and her about what you see in the future. If you know that there's no way you're ready or maybe that you'll never be ready for life with three kids, then you should probably end the relationship before you get in deeper, both with her and with the kids. If you're cool with kids, but you know she's not the one and you think she'll never be the one, same deal. You kind of got to get out now before you hurt her and you can't be selfish. You could enjoy her time or she could be super hot or super great. But if you know she's never going to be the one, you're going to get things real sticky if you keep dating her for a while and get in more tight with her and her family and her kids and then try to leave. If you really see a future with this woman and you see a life together with the kids, then you got to go for it. You can't lose out on your person because of a big commitment and what you could have with her and the kids could be super rewarding more than you could ever imagine as someone who doesn't have kids of his own. There's a lot of serious conversations to have, though. Does she want more kids? Because do you want kids of your own? How much time do the kids spend with this father figure? Is it really drama free like he's really out of the picture or are you going to be dealing with that? Because that's a big thing to think about as well. In the end. You got to be maybe a little more mature than your 27 years and be able to be honest with her and yourself about what you see from this. And if you aren't going to be able to commit to her and these kids, um, then you got to get out. I'm sticking with dogs. You figure out what works for you. I'm cool without the kids. But if you're into that and you're always, you know, going to be thinking about doing that in the future, then maybe you're just a little ahead of schedule with this amazing woman. Thanks for the dilemma, Jason. And thanks to you guys for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 